this is Through the Badlands Podcast, and on this episode, we have Nick Ingram. Nick, do you want to introduce yourself? Uh, sure. Um, so my name is Nick Ingram. Right now, I am a cinematographer editor for a digital agency based out of Nashville, Tennessee called Snapshot Interactive. So why did you start doing filmmaking, and why did you kind of lean more towards like the camera and lighting department? So I started filmmaking um, in, let's see, I guess uh, maybe like ninth grade in high school. It was just kind of one of those things. I was uh, skateboarding with my friends, and then we just wanted to film tricks and stuff. So, you know, I went to the internet and just like typed in probably best camera for skateboarding or something like that. Uh, somehow ended up on a couple skateboarding forums, um, uh, specifically for filming. And through there, just, you know, kind of fell in love with the idea of like, it, it's kind of like a thing that happens with a lot of people. Like, I'm sure it happened with you and audio, but like, you know, you, you, kind of jump in and then you see like the cool equipment and then you start realizing like oh that's what makes something cool is like you know doing this kind of content with this kind of equipment and stuff like that and you know obviously not saying it's just about the equipment but like seeing that kind of stuff early on and like realizing oh that's so cool because with this camera you could put this fisheye on it and that's fisheye looks so good and then you know it just makes the tricks look better and stuff like that So I think I just like really gravitated towards that. It was like the first thing that I jumped into at that young of an age that was like I could learn technical things and start applying those and seeing like actual results and something that I was doing. So I basically did that and then kind of started doing uh, skateboarding stuff and had some mini DV cameras and then went from mini DV to a DSLR, got a T2i and uh, actually ended up trading my T2i for another uh, mini DV camera because um, mini DV was so big and it was funny there was actually like a revolt in the skateboard community for a long time to like not shoot HD and to only shoot standard definition on mini DV cameras because um, the frame is taller height wise so it gives you like more vertical space in the frame but anyways uh, so ended up just doing that and then kind of through that I just was active on the forums and you know started learning stuff with the DSLR about like ISO and shutter speed and exposure and what that means and you know i would get back in from a day of filming and have some trick that someone like slaved over for six hours trying to land and like got just destroyed their body trying to do it and then i realized my iso was on like 3200 and then i'm like oh this looks really bad what happened why did i ruin this whole shot and then i would have to go online and research it and learn all kinds of stuff about it and just kept doing that for a while until um i eventually got later in high school and just kind of gravitated towards the TV program um, and had a really good instructor for that class for my sophomore and junior year of high school. And then they ended up leaving and hired a terrible instructor for the my senior year of high school. And they um, I ended up basically teaching that class at that point, just because I was learning things online through forums and stuff. And yeah, and then at that point, I was like, well, might as well go for go to uh, college for this because it's basically the only thing that I'm doing that I'm like way better than everyone else at my school with. So might as well just pursue this. And so I did. Um, ended up going to Full Sail, which is where I met Luke. And yeah, so I guess that's what originally got me in, if that answers the question after that like four minute long rant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So like um, 
when you started doing like skateboard videos, was it very popular on YouTube, like the actual montages? Or was it actually more like kind of short films about skateboarders? Because I remember when I first started out like filming stuff and editing, I was just constantly doing like weird montages of stuff because that was like super popular when I was growing up. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, I mean, skateboard filming was was really popular uh, in that time period, probably more popular than it is now. I don't know. Maybe I'm just really out of the loop. But um, yeah, back during that time period, like everyone had a Sony VX1000, which was the first uh, mini DV camera and was really, really popular with skateboard filming. And everyone was kind of doing the same, you know, kind of almost became generic, but same typical skate videos. Yeah. I mean, I was doing similar stuff, nothing crazy, exceptional. Yeah. I mean, it all kind of fell into a, a similar style, I guess. Yeah. Like I remember when I first started out editing different videos, I was recording um, like Call of Duty videos. <laughs> with nice. Like uh, quick scopes, 360 no scopes. And then I would like put that to music. And I remember only dubstep. Like one of the, yeah, only <laughs> one of the very <laughs> first things I did edit clips every time like the snare or bass drum would hit, and I thought it was just so cool. Dude, yes, absolutely. So besides like the forms, how much do you think that really helped you? Did it guide you, and then you kind of had to figure out most of the techniques for yourself? Um, I think the forums taught me a lot. Um, I think it's something that, uh, especially during that time period, not as many people were taking advantage of. It was just really cool because, you know, I was like, I don't know, 14 or 15 on these forums with people that would be like, we're basically in the same position that I am now, like a work, you know, working in the field professionally. And I was like reading because one thing that's like that I would do when I went to the forums, is I, it's not like I was posting a lot, um, but sometimes I would just go in and like read threads like and it would be a thread that I just like I didn't even know what it was talking about. But it was just like it seemed relatively interesting, like someone talking about like, I don't know, bit depth or something like that when I was in high school. And I was like, I have no idea what this is, but I just read through it and I kind of start to pick up on things and stuff because you're basically reading a conversation between like, you know, a couple people that are fairly knowledgeable. Um, so I kind of would like learn things slowly. Um, it's definitely a lot different than like learning from an actual school or class or textbook or something like that, because you're jumping in and no one's saying, oh, this is what bit depth is, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's just like someone talking about the difference between eight and 10 bit. And you're like, okay, cool. 10 bits better. Uh, I guess I know what bit depth is. I don't really, I mean, sure. And then I just move on and I start looking at something else, like mm -hmm. something about lenses and some like uh, how to mount, you know, that was like a big thing when DSLRs were uh, coming out in like the 5D era. People were like trying to mount lenses and everyone's like, oh, Nikon lenses are so much better on Canon stuff than Canon lenses and getting like, you know, weird lens mounts like Russian lenses and stuff like that. And it was a whole thing, but just going through and just kind of piecing together information from what people were talking about. You know, I, I equate it to like being a 14-year-old a kid and getting to go to like, I don't know, some meetup of professional people and not necessarily saying anything, but just sitting in the room and hearing them talk and hearing like, what does someone who's like right. a professional person working in the field right now, what do they talk about? What do they care about? What do they gripe about? And just learning those things and kind of just picking up on information that way. When you got more and more interested in filmmaking and you decided to go to film school, what surprised you the most about like, you know, actually going to film school and sitting in on those classes? Uh, I mean, I guess it's hard to say, but nothing really jumped out because like everything 
jumped out, if that makes any sense. Like uh, nothing yeah. was weird and crazy because everything that I was learning was so different from anything that I had previously understood that it just like it, nothing stood out specifically. Just like I just remember coming in and being like, you know, thinking that I had a, a decent grasp of information that I've, you know, had read online and stuff like that. And then coming in and realizing, oh, yeah, I don't know anything, which was, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't coming in like super, you know, arrogant and ignorant. Like I do that I didn't really know that much, but you start to learn more and more about how much you don't know. And you're like, oh, wow, this like I thought that I was like getting deep into this. Like I'm totally surface level right now. There's so, so, so much to learn. Um, so I guess that was the main thing, you know, and, and like typical film school thing. I remember in our class, like one of our first instructors was like, all right, who in here wants to be a director? And then like half the class raises their hand. It's like you know, not <laughs> yeah. not everyone wants to be a director, but like you just come in with these like preconceived notions of what, what filmmaking is and, you know, how you think you're going to go through film school and become popular as a filmmaker and, you know, do whatever. And you kind of jump into it and you realize like how different everything is. Like I went into it and I was like, oh, I want to be a camera operator because I was coming from skateboard filming. And I just like when you're skateboard filming, like one of the really popular things is like following people around with the fisheye. So you're basically getting on a board with really smooth wheels and you're uh, like kind of hunching over and getting the camera really low to the ground because it makes it seem like you're going way faster because the you know, because the distortion of the fisheye is making the ground move really fast. And, uh, you you know, you're really low and angled up so that it makes them look like anything that they jump over or like, you know, a, a stair set that they ollie down or something like that. It makes it look way bigger than it actually is. So like had all this info and I'm like, oh, this is so cool. Like I want to be a camera operator because, you know, I just love the idea of like holding the camera in the hand and being the person getting the shot. But like I went to film school and I was just like, yeah, huh. I don't know. <laughs> like you just get so overwhelmed by all mm-hmm. different kinds of information that you kind of just latched on to something. And yeah, I mean, I think I've always that that's, you know, at least planted the seed for like the camera stuff. And I think I gravitated towards it, not necessarily because it was like, oh, I feel such a strong connection and like, this is my thing. But, uh, you know, just being like, oh, cool. Like, I feel like this comes pretty natural to me. Let's just pursue this and see where this goes. And then that's kind of where I've been ever since. So what was your plan after film school? So yeah, that's a really interesting one. So after film school, kind of, I think everyone that I went to school with about six months in before you graduate, you're like, oh yeah, I should probably start thinking about what I'm going to do. And so we were in Orlando. And so a lot of people, some people are like, oh, I'm moving to Atlanta or LA or New York. And, you know, I was interested in moving to any of those places. I thought it would be cool. So people are looking at Atlanta, New York, and LA as places to move. And I was like, oh, that sounds really cool. Um, but I just happened to have a friend who I actually, actually had met through one of the skateboard forums who was the same age as me, didn't go to film school or anything like that, but was like working full time in the film industry as a electrician in Nashville. And so I was like, well, I can move to LA or New York and not know a single person um, or... I could move to Nashville and at least know one person, but that one person could introduce me to like several new people. And then, you know, I could just go from there. Kind of, I didn't really have anything necessarily pulling me to New York and LA and I knew it was going to be more expensive. So I was like, well, Nashville is a lot cheaper, um, even though people consistently complain now that it's getting more and more expensive because it's a growing city, but um, still cheaper than LA or New York by a long shot. And, um, 
yeah, just was, it was easier for me to make connections here. Um, and I knew that although there's not a ton of work, there's still plenty of work to, you know, have a professional career here. What were some of your first projects you were working on outside of film school? Um, so I did a couple quick things in Orlando, um, just with some friends that had graduated. Um, but the main thing probably wasn't until I moved to, uh, Nashville. Um, and then I ended up day, day playing on a couple of things, uh, which those were interesting. Um, just like my first time, uh, I was day playing, but it was like a union shoot. So first time being on a set with like, uh, bigger crews and like, um, outside of film school, obviously, you know, working on a set with like big crews and like walkies and stuff like that. And like, uh, the first time too, the big thing with film school is like, even though you, you might have like, and I feel like our, our school, uh, did a good job of like, uh, explaining different positions and making sure everyone was like, you know, understood what they were doing, but it was still like, you had like all the different positions on a film set. So, um, versus some schools where yeah. it's like, you know, everyone's doing like a skeleton crew thing. And the biggest set that they've been on is like six people. We, we did have like 40 students on our final project, which is cool. But then you go to the, like into the real world and it's like, <laughs> as you know harsh as it sounds like no one is there to help you do your job you're getting paid to do your job so you need to show up and do your job um right so like being on set the first time and just being so nervous and i'm just like i'm like oh man uh where like where do i go get a walkie i don't i don't know where the walkie what where the walkies are and i i don't know who to ask like i don't know anyone so i don't know like oh am i about to go ask a pa where the walkie is or is that person a director like, you know, just having no yeah. idea what the like social dynamic is of everyone, and especially like um, on a feature too, because so many of those people are, are not day players and they have been around, along for the whole ride. So like they know each other and like everyone's just looking at me like, you know, who the heck is this guy? What department is he in? I've never seen him before. And why does he look so lost? Do all that. And it was fine. Um, you know, nothing terrible. All those thoughts are like racing through your mind as you're like looking for it. And of course you find it. And it was like in a really easy spot. And everyone's like, you know, I was like, Oh, you could just ask me. And I'm just like, Oh, I, I don't, right. you know, <laughs> I was just so like nervous. So I was like, uh, it was really slow at first in Nashville. Um, I had a couple connections and I would like meet with people, but I was meeting with people who just like were getting a decent amount of work, but not to the, like, it was a lot of like, uh, solo shooters or like people who were working on like people who, would like bring me on for like lower budget stuff. But then when they had money, they were like, oh, cool. Well, like obviously for this project, I have to get like an actual DP. I can't just hire this dude who's right out of film school. So it was like, it's an awkward thing to try to break into because you have like basically have to prove yourself as like, hey, I can be that good DP, not just that film school kid. So it was a long process. I mean, and like this too is like, you know, moving to Nashville takes up a lot of time, like learning the city and stuff like that. And I, I just got a side job right when I moved here and started doing that and was just like learning the ropes and, you know, how much things were going to cost and just trying to like live and survive on my own was a huge time consuming thing. So then, you know, through that, I'm like working with people. Um, and then finally met this dude, um, uh, Willie Robbins and uh, started shooting a couple things through him and ended up doing like probably three or four different short films with him um, that were like some of the bigger earlier things that I did. The first things that I was like DPing outside of film school that was like, oh, cool. We actually have a legitimate crew. Everyone's getting paid and I have equipment that's not like my personal equipment. So um, right. yeah, started doing those. Um, 
And yeah, actually the, the first project that I did with him ended up, uh, it just played at uh, Cannes a couple of days ago at the short film corner. Yeah. Which nice. is cool. So yeah, that, those were basically the earlier things. And then, um, uh, let's go back to you moving to Nashville. So you'd never lived there before? I had never lived here before. No. Uh, first time moving here. What was that process like? Did you think about that? I know you said you had different ideas in mind where you might want to go. But what was that process like when you said, hmm, maybe I should move here? Like, what did you start doing to, you know, be able to pick up from Florida and then actually move and then work there? Yeah, I mean, I I think a lot of people when they graduate film school, you know, it's the same thing as going to film school in the first place or like really, you know, any difficult thing that you pursue, you go in and you're like, oh, this is going to be really tough, but I can totally handle it. And then it ends up being a hundred times more difficult than you ever expected. Um, But you still get through it. Um, But you just have this like, you know, you have this ignorance when you go into it where you're like, oh, this is definitely going to be a hard thing, but I'm not too worried about it. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. as I was graduating, I was like, oh yeah, I'm going to move to Nashville and stuff like that. Um, And so took whatever little savings I had moved up here and yeah, I was just like, ah, I'm just going to hit the ground running. I'm just going to get a job that I don't care about. And the day that I need to, you know, if it takes me two months to find enough freelance work to go full time, then it takes me two months. If it takes me two years and whatever, but I'm just going to find something that can pay my bills and that I don't have to worry about anything else and just go for it. So, um, that's pretty much what right. I did. I wasn't really into the idea of, uh, which I know some people do it and love it, but like just being really scrappy and taking every single little freelance job that comes your way um, and, you know, driving production vans and doing all this kind of stuff for like no money. I was like, eh, I'd rather just have like a stable thing that I make like decent money at and uh, just do that and take in, you know, the freelance jobs that I feel like are actually going to push me farther. Um, and so that's what I did. Right. And I think that's really important, too, is two sides to your answer is, uh, you know, when you're out of film school or you want to start uh, being a filmmaker, whether it be a freelancer or just on set, is you got to choose, am I going to pick up every single job that comes my way? Or am I going to, you know, really look at the job and see if it will actually push me forward? Because a lot of times people can use you saying, oh, this kid's right out of film school. We'll just let him do this and he'll probably do it for free. Right. Honestly. And another side to that is what I really like about that answer is you going to Nashville. You wanted to still support yourself by getting that second job. Like right now I have a second job. I work at a church and I also do freelance and I also sell sound libraries. So you know, taking that jump to, you know, freelance and whatever, a lot of people think, oh, you know, you're taking the jump and you're quitting the nine to five job and just doing freelance. But, you know, that's not always the case. It's a combined effort until you actually can do it full time. Right, for sure. And I, you know, I, that's one thing that I always try to tell people, um, like prospective students that are about to graduate and like enter into the industry and stuff like that is like, there's no reason to be scared of getting any kind of side job or anything like that, especially now with like the way the gig based economy works and how you can drive for Uber, or like deliver food with Postmates or like uh, deliver right. with Amazon Prime and stuff like that kind of stuff where you can yeah. literally just log on to an app at any point in time and just make some money for yourself. 
I think is a really big thing. And I honestly think that that kind of stuff shows more initiative than someone who's just like, oh yeah, I'm going to freelance all the time. Because the people who freelance all the time generally have periods of time where they're like, oh yeah, work is slow right now. Haven't got anything in like a week. Well, if you're really like passionate about something and you really want to do something and progress yourself forward, you're going to say, okay, cool. I don't, I'm not booked tomorrow. I'm just going to go drive for Uber or something like that, you know, and get out right. and make, you know, 150 bucks. You know, it's not the most insane amount of money in the world, but uh, go out and at least make some money for yourself and feel productive for the day and not just sit around the house saying, oh man, I really need to build my network. And then you just sit around your house doing nothing. You know, right. you shot yep. like one Facebook message to someone today. When in reality, you could have spent more time just doing something. The thing is, there's, there's so many things to do now that it's like, it doesn't even have to be a side job. Like it can literally just be something whenever you're not doing film stuff and you have some time where it's like, hey, I'm literally not booked today. Let me go find an app where I can walk dogs or something like that for 20 bucks an hour. So you go do that. And it's like, it's not like a dedicated nine to five side job. It's just making some extra money whenever you need it. Um, and I think that's something, yeah, that's not, you know, it's not talked about a lot, but I think it is, I, I think it's a huge thing for anyone pursuing any kind of art because it's an easy way to supplement the income that you're making through your art. Um, and it's an easy way to just be able to give yourself some financial freedom uh, to invest in equipment or like, you know, even be a freelancer and be like, oh, cool. I'm not getting that much, you know, uh, I'm not making that much money from freelancing right now, but because I'm working every off day that I can, uh, you know, just have money to like put into savings or, you know, go on a vacation or something like that. And to not just be like a super broke freelancer that a lot of people end up being, which, you know, no offense to people who want to do that. There's some people who love doing that. And that's totally cool too. But, you know, just being the kind of person that I am, I just really gravitated towards uh, those kind of jobs. And I was like, oh, this is so awesome that I can just work whenever I want. I'm starting to think that more and more people that think, oh, I'm an artist or I'm a filmmaker, I'm a freelancer, think that um, living not as well as they could be, you know, with that second job or whatever is like, the norm or how it should be. Right. And I don't think that's the case. Like, you know, you want to be, you know, um, less hours of sleep is really glorified, especially with filmmaking and sound design. Right. And, you know, there would be conversations saying, Hey man, uh, were you working on that project last night? Yeah. I stayed up all night to do it. Yeah. That was like, Oh, that's awesome. But it wasn't about, you know, how good is that project? How do you feel about it? Do you feel rewarded by doing it? It was none of that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's one of those things too, that it's like, it's total, totally person by person and like project by project, basically. So, you know, there's some people who want to live that kind of lifestyle and want to do that. And that's totally cool. As long as that, you know, as long as that actually makes them happy at the end of the day. Um, but the issue is like the people that are doing that and they have this like false sense of happiness. We're like, oh, it's so cool that I stayed up late. And then they realize six months down the road, like, what am I doing? I had like, you know, right. I've got eight hours of sleep this week. You, you just fall into this pit of like, how much am I sacrificing for what I'm actually getting out of doing this thing that I thought that I loved, you know? And another side to that, what we were talking about just a little bit earlier is, are you sacrificing your finances? Are you not building up? Are you not saving? Are you not saving for retirement? Are you not uh, budgeting in place for your food? Are you only having enough money to eat off the dollar menu for 
you know, at McDonald's. Like, I mean, that's totally cool if you are. Yeah. And the, the other thing too, is like your growth in the industry doesn't necessarily have to be linear either. It's not like, Oh, cool. I've taken 100 freelance jobs for the past year and I'm doing really well. That's cool. But you have to realize also that there's no harm in saying, actually, instead of doing that, I had, you know, some good opportunity to get some side job that I made a lot of money. And in that year, I took two freelance jobs, but I saved enough money where I'm going to buy myself some really nice equipment. And next year, I'm going to put myself in a better spot than if I would have just freelanced the whole year. And I'm not saying that anyone should do that or, you know, shouldn't do that. But I'm just saying like, there are other options besides like specifically taking every single job that can advance you further than taking every single job. So along the way to those more of those freelance jobs, um, were you working on anything else that were like was building your portfolio or demo reel? Uh, yeah, so I actually had a couple good opportunities pop up uh, around that time after I had got my footing in Nashville and I was kind of getting you know some slow and steady, consistent uh, camera assistant work and some small DP gigs and stuff like that, camera operating. So I just started having a couple friends randomly who were doing cool things. I had um, a good friend who was hand forging knives in his garage and he had a full furnace set up and everything. And I was like, Oh, that's super cool. I'd love to, you know, make some content around that. Let's do some branded content. Let's get you a brand video. And so I did. I just grabbed my camera and everything and drove down to my hometown where he was at and we filmed and it ended up really cool and I was super pumped with it. And it's it's really great in my opinion just doing anything like that cuz even deeper than even deeper than like building yourself a portfolio or anything like that. It's just like it's such a great memory that I have of like going down with my friend and just being hot and sweaty in his garage we both like took our shirts off because he's he has a furnace in his garage and it's like you know 800 degrees Mm -hmm. in there and i'm like just running around with my camera getting it super close to the fire like way closer than i should have and it's just like any i I think it's like super awesome anytime you can just like get people together and do something and and like that's that's one of the reasons I love passion projects so much is because you're saying, hey, there's little to no money on the table, but like, do you want to come together and do something cool? Regardless of any kind of like, oh, you know, this is going to advance your career. This is going to give you so much exposure. You're going to get to work with cool equipment or, you know, um, whatever. It's just a way of saying like, hey, do you want to get together and just do something cool that we can like look back on and be like, I had such a fun time making that project and collaborating and just like, there's so many excuses to not do something like that, that anytime it actually comes together and you make something that you're actually happy with and everyone involved is like, whoa, we, we, we did that. That's really cool. Everyone involved is happy and pumped and, you know, it's just, it's a good time. So I just love that feeling and kept progressing uh, into doing a couple more of those. So like, you know, was taking more corporate work as, as a freelancer country music videos and stuff like that because it's Nashville and uh, just started doing more of those kind of jobs and anytime too that I could like get equipment that I was uh, working on a paid shoot over a weekend I would just uh, I'd be like all right cool well how can I film something like between the time that I pick up gear on Friday and call time on Saturday what's something that I can film in those like 10 hours (laughs) to just have another project so I ended up doing that and I um, did a couple of cool projects. I had, um, I did one of my friend who's a, uh, 
who makes hand balm for climbers. And we just like, you know, I just brought a friend up from Atlanta and I was like, Hey, do you want to help me film this? And I just have a friend who does this cool thing. He wants some content. So let's do it. And he was like, yeah, man, uh, there's a really cool spot to film out by Chattanooga, which is about two hours from here. It's a really famous bouldering spot. And so we just went into the woods and just shot some stuff for a day. And it was just cool because it was just people hanging out and having a good time. And like, even if the cameras weren't there, it would have been an enjoyable experience. But we had the cameras there and we, we got to capture everything and we brought it back and we're like, wow, this stuff looks really, really cool. It was like one of the coolest things I had done at the time. Just like the knife thing was one of the coolest things I had done at that time. And then this one was like, you know, had some nicer equipment and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. My friend was really pumped and, you know, I took it home and uh, both the knife project and this project, Luke ended up doing post sound in both of those. And it was fun getting to collaborate and, you know, bring it all together. And then... After that as well, I ended up uh, another good tip for anyone who's trying to do some um, who wants to do passion projects or like spec work or anything like that. Find someone who is near you who does cool things. You know, maybe that's a painter. Maybe that's a uh, a knife maker. Uh, Another one I did was a furniture maker and just find someone who's doing something cool and who's like making things. And if you want to shoot something with them. Um, instead of just being like, Hey, I'll film a video for you for free, which always comes off a little strange to some people. Cause it's like a weird thing. They're like, why do you want to come out and film me? Is this some kind of scam? Be like, Hey, uh, would you be willing to do something in exchange for whatever you're making? So like with my friend who makes knives, I was like, Hey dude, you know, what if I just come make you a video and you just make me a knife? And it's like, oh, okay, cool. And then they're happy because they're actually paying something for the video that has value. And, you know, it's obviously not anywhere close to what an actual budget to film something would be. You know, doing an exchange puts at least some kind of value on what you're doing. So it's not just a free project because anytime I've done a free project, it's always been like, oh, like that was cool. But there's like this kind of like awkward tension afterwards. It's like, do I owe you something like can I help you find more work or like, you know what, like there, it's just kind of an awkward leaving point. It's like, Oh, here's a video. Cool. Enjoy it. All right. See ya. And then like, you never talk to that person again. I don't know. But anyways, doing something for an exchange, I feel like is a, a good way to, you know, get something out of doing a free video for someone. Um, and B just a cool way to, uh, to, have some kind of value and not make the exchange feels awkward and have a way to like approach someone. Cause I, I do, I feel like there's a lot of people who make things that would be more inclined to give you something for making a video than for you to just come in and do a video for free because they, they think that there's something that you're trying to get out of them. Uh, when in reality, just you right. want to take advantage of the cool thing that they're doing and capture that and, you know, be able to put your mark on uh, the visuals behind what they're doing. Right. And one thing I want to add to that is, uh, the person that might work on a passion project or not, like if someone comes to you and says, Hey, we have this project and it's a passion project. You really have to fill that out and decide for yourself because that project can lead into something else like an actual paid job, or it can just be very rewarding at the end of it, or it can lead to nothing and it can be bad. Right. Absolutely. I, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think one thing that's really important is just um, just feeling it out and having relationships. I don't know how often um, 
because just to put it in perspective, all the passion projects that I was talking about were passion projects that I had started, not passion projects that I was necessarily like. So it wasn't it wasn't a passion project that I jumped in and was saying, hey, I'll AC for free or something like that. It was something that I was starting myself. And I was saying, hey, I'm going to direct DP this. Let me just get a camera in my hands and I'm just going to film it the best I can. I'm going to get whoever to work on it that can. Sure, like, let's just go. Let's do this. So I think if you are approached by someone who wants to film a pageant project, I think you do have to be a lot more weary of that. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I just think you should feel it out. Like, or I think people put a lot of value on their time early in their career, which I think is very uh, interesting. I think there's people that come out of film school at 20 and they're like, oh, I don't do passion projects. I don't work unless I'm getting a paycheck, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, okay, you're 20 years old. If you actually want to be doing this for a long time, you're going to have a career of probably... I don't know, 30 or 40 more years. So working a passion project for even two days is not going to put a dent in your career, you know, as long as you can at least make sure your bills are paid for the month. Like jumping on a passion project is not going to be the end of the world if it doesn't work out for you. So I do think that it is important to feel those kind of things out. But I mean, I think, you know, it's really hard to explain it but just talk to him see you know do you feel good about the people if you go to a pre-production meeting for a passion project or you you know your facebook messaging them or something does it feel sketchy at all if it feels sketchy at all probably don't do it you know it's probably just not worth your time um and sometimes you're going to work with on a passion project with the best possible people with the most heart into the project not trying to screw you over at all and you're going to get nothing out of it but the thing is you just have to put in the time. And I mean, if you really love doing film, I think you're naturally going to. But I, I think it is so important just to gain as much experience as you can, not even necessarily like, oh, you need to become an experienced uh, camera assistant or director of photography or something like that. Just just get on set and just get experience interacting with people in the film industry. Like learn how to have uh, relationships that end up going really bad, right? With just terrible people that totally screw you okay. over. I think it's important just have those experiences and learn what it's like to get screwed over, learn how bad that sucks, <laughs> learn how much you hate that, and learn that you never want to do that to another person, you know? And I, I think just any kind of experience that you can gain uh, in the beginning is really good. Um, I'm definitely not saying that for people that have been in the industry for 10 years to to jump on passion projects and stuff, but I'm saying in the beginning, you basically have nothing to lose and it's a really great way to get your start. So you started doing different passion projects and you did some freelancing for a couple of people. What were the other steps that you've been taking to get to the point where you're at now? So yeah, I basically got to the point where I was doing a couple of those passion projects and then, um, working freelance on the side, um, And I'm the kind of person where, you know, I I would rather pursue an opportunity that shows itself to me that I feel like is a unique opportunity rather than trying to just then rather to pursue something that I feel like I'm like swimming against the tide. So basically, I would rather walk through a door that's opening for me and someone's holding open for me than to try to like smash my way through a door that just isn't going to open. Um so I basically had an opportunity to rise where, for example, one of the things I used to do is basically any time I saw anything to um, apply for, I would just apply and be like, oh, cool, whatever, I'll apply for that. And, you know, if I get accepted, sure, like that'd be awesome. If not, whatever, I don't care, you know, and if I get accepted, cool, I'll take I'll take the job, you know, I'll take whatever freelance job. And if I just hate it or, you know, whatever, I'll just 
stop doing it. You know, <laughs> I'll just, you know, quit or do whatever. Like I've never felt like tied down and I'm always just trying to like see what opportunities arise. So there's a staff position at a local uh, digital agency here in Nashville for a cinematographer editor. And I just took it and I've been doing that for a while now. Um, and it's been great. Um, so it's like a full-time position at an agency. Um, and I'm one of, uh, one of four shooters that we have in Nashville basically. And it's interesting. Um, a lot of, uh, a lot of corporate stuff, a lot of big budget talking head stuff, um, with really like important Mm -hmm. CEOs and a lot of healthcare and a lot of, uh, industrial and, you know, getting to work with clients that like, I don't know, uh, financial tech stuff and, you know, things like that, that you're like, uh, like definitely not sexy clients, but, stuff that uh is really interesting and it's fun being a part of an agency because from the freelance side of like you know me me booking all my own clients and stuff like that like i'm learning like okay what is the sales process like on a on a really big budget tv production or something like that you know how does that kind of stuff work and you start to learn the ropes of like you know every production company basically works its way up from the ground and uh you know you start taking whatever gigs you can you start building it up building it up and you know working with a client who eventually hopefully becomes a bigger client, you know, a client that can grow with you is really good. And you get to the point where, you know, someone else sees that you're working with certain clients and you get looped into an RFP, which is a request for proposal. And then that basically means they like, you know, a big company will send out like, Hey, uh, we want um, some stuff for social. So we're going to do five 30 second long videos. You know, we saw you work with similar kind of content. So we're going to invite you to apply for it. So just submit us a treatment and please give us a uh, scope and budget as well. And then you submit it. And, you know, sometimes they tell you how many people you're submitting against. You know, sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, we invited all you guys because you're a really big player in the healthcare field or sometimes you know, you can invite it because of, you know, someone on the team or creative reasons or just whatever. Um, and sometimes they tell you budget, whatever, and sometimes they don't. And it's just an application process and learning how to pitch and learning like things like that. And, and, you know, while I'm not involved with that stuff every single day, it's, it's not necessarily my job, but it is fun to be around and fun to learn the actual process of a larger operating uh, agency and production company and learning how, um, all that stuff works. Yeah. Are you guys like making, uh, like sort of like how to, or what, what are you guys like kind of filming? Yeah. So we handle, um, it's really interesting. So we work with a lot of like bigger companies. We work for like HCA is a big company. HCA is one of the largest, uh, healthcare companies, uh, in the world. Um, to put it in perspective, they gross about as much money as Coca-Cola. So they're a huge, huge, huge client, but we do like their bigger internal videos. Um, so we're not doing a lot of like, uh, consumer facing stuff. Um, cause a lot of these companies don't really do consumer facing stuff that much. Occasionally you'll see like an ad or two. Um, but we don't get a lot of our money from, uh, doing the really big productions, we do a lot of uh, higher budget internal videos. So it's like the CEO is like, oh, we're, you know, we're doing a rebrand and we want to make sure everyone's on the same page or like, you know, it's like an HR 
department saying, hey, we're this HR, you know, division of this massive, massive company that has like thousands and thousands of employees. And we have a thousand people in our HR department alone. And we just want to let people know in our HR department that, hey, here's the ladder for you. If you want to grow with us, you can. And here's the things that you can do to grow with us. So it's like that kind of stuff. So they're still bigger budget projects, um, and we do a lot of them. Um, but it's not like the really, really, you know, we're not doing million-dollar spots to relate that back to the question. Uh, we're not doing a lot of explainer stuff. Uh, we do a lot, of, um, a lot of internal videos, so it's a lot of talking heads, a uh, lot of traveling just to film. Like, And that's the crazy thing is like sometimes there'll be a bigger budget project uh, relative, you know, it'll be a uh, – a five figure budget. Um, but just because it's a five figure budget doesn't mean you have a lot of money to spend on things because you have to fly, uh, for two different shoot days to film, uh, one person talking because they're that high profile that they can literally only film for, uh, one specific day, you know? So like your budget gets eaten up because you have to fly out two separate days, which means you have two separate equipment rentals, two separate hotels, two separate rental cars, two separate, you know, whatever. Um, so it ends up being like a two crew thing that you fly out a couple people for and, uh, you know, and you just film it and it's nothing special, but that's just how much it costs to do that kind of content when, you know, things become very specific like that. And so a lot of it is not super creative. Some of it is more creative, some of it, and, and, and you know, we're more and more pushing ourselves to go in that direction um, and become more and more creative just because you, as you get bigger budget projects, um, in our space, you know, they become the more like, okay, cool. Let's figure out what we can do with branding and stuff like that. And less about, uh, getting a message across as far as, um, reestablishing how your company is committed to being the best at X, Y, and Z, you know, something like that. So when you first started this job, was it more about like, Hey, I need this coverage. I need to get this interview and it was very technical, like, oh, I got to get this lighting correct. And is it now kind of like, you know, I know the basics of how to get a good interview set up. And then you start getting a little bit creative, like make, um, you know, maybe changing the light a little bit or changing the camera angle. Are, are you doing that sort of thing now where you kind of have the basics down and you're able to kind of tell what they're trying to convey a little bit more through the filmmaking process? Um, Yes and no. Um, That definitely happens to an extent. But really, I mean, when you're working with like corporate companies like this, a lot of times it's you'll have, say, a $20,000 budget to film four different interviews in one day or something like that, right? And the other thing too is like, that's one thing that kind of throws people out of whack. Uh, we're a digital agency, so we handle everything from pre-production to post-production. Mm-hmm. So just because you have $20,000 doesn't mean you're spending $20,000 in production. Right. Uh, you, you know, because post-production is very expensive, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Typical post rates, uh, you know, are a couple hundred dollars an hour. Uh, so, you know, by the time you take two hours of footage and you cut it down to version six, you spent a lot of that budget in post-production. Um, and then if you have any kind of animation or anything like that, it just all adds up. And, you know, obviously audio posts and stuff like that um, is a big factor too. So anyways, to so basically take half of that off the top and put it into post-production, if not more, because a lot of times a lot happens in post-production. So anyways, a lot of it is just like, you know, a company will have, uh, or a department will have like $20,000 to spend on a video or whatever. And they just like, they're like, Hey, well, this is what we need. And you're like, okay, cool. 
Um, and it's less about the creative and more just like how can we accomplish what they're trying to do in this period of time with these like parameters and stuff like that. And the creative definitely does happen, but it's a lot of like kind of just rolling with the punches and figuring out how can you make the best out of what you're doing at that point in time in the sense of, and by no means do I think, do I mean like a lot of our stuff ends up looking bad, but it's just like we default to a lot of things. So like for interview stuff, it's just like, okay, I'm going to figure out what I'm, how I'm going to light the background of whatever I'm doing. Um, Do I need to uh, drop the exposure? Do I need to increase the exposure? I'm going to figure that out. And then I'm going to put a big soft key um, probably far side, unless it's like super corporate. And then I'll put it, you know, more close side on the, to the camera and just get a nice fall off on them. Um, so, you know, everything looks good. Um, but it, it's not like, uh, not like overly cinematic and stuff like that, because the funny thing is that a lot of people like kind of get into is they kind of start to realize like, sometimes clients don't want the thing that a lot of filmmakers think looks the best. So a lot of times clients don't want, um, they don't want you to take a $20,000 video and rent an Alexa, or they don't want you to take their $20,000 budget and rent an Alexa mini and some anamorphics and stuff like that. Um, because in reality, the same, you know, if they shop that out, the same video out twice, right? And one person rents an Alexa Mini with uh, some anamorphics and puts it on an easy rig and, you know, it does some really dramatic lighting and stuff like that and films it super dramatic and, um, you know, whatever. Even if you think that that fits the story, um, the client might be looking for something a lot more reserved. And the guy who just like brought out, you know, a C100 and a Canon L lens or something like that, something super cheap and basic, uh, that person can end up. Uh, you know, getting the business the second time, even though they right. they spent way less money on production. Um, sometimes that's just what the client wants, you know. And so you can do other things with that budget, like um, you know, do more shoot days or do more in post production or you know, do whatever and figure out a way to repurpose that money um, rather than just doing the coolest looking thing. Because although it is fun, and we definitely have clients that do let us do that, um, and. I'm not discounting any of that kind of stuff. I'm not trying to say like, oh, you know, doing cool work is not cool. Uh, Doing cool work is always cool. But there's a time and a place for it. And you have to figure out the right clients. And, you know, it's some people don't like that at all. But like people like me, I enjoy uh, just the technical side of saying, okay, cool. Let me figure out how to light an interview very simply, but very efficiently and light it to the best of my ability quickly. And like, you know, it's like perfecting a talking head, like figuring out like if I have a big soft key and then, you know, can do some kind of small hair light and figure out something with fill and figure out where I'm going to put it. Am I going to do negative fill or, you know, whatever. And, and just lighting something nicely like that to me is enough to just like make me happy. You know, I don't need anything that's like super, super crazy. Um, as long as I can just have a way to express myself creatively and have a way to just do some creative problem solving, that's enough to satisfy me, you know? Right. And also that's good for when you're working at a company and also just freelance is, you know, what do I need to do to tell a good story? I feel like too many filmmakers and even sound designers always go to cinematic when cinematic storytelling might not be the best storytelling of what you need for that project. Oh, yeah. And I would say, I mean, honestly, most of the time for for stuff that's like, you know, that a business like is the end client. I mean, cinematic is 
generally not going to be their answer. You know, um, we've had clients come to us before saying, Hey, you know, here's what we did last time. We don't like it. And we look at it and it's like beautiful cinematic stuff. But the thing is sometimes clients don't want that because no matter how beautiful it looks, no matter how gorgeous the cinematography is, no matter how great the sound design is, no matter how, whatever, if it doesn't fit with their brand, they don't like it, you know? So it's like, you really have to figure out like that is the key thing, right? Figuring out what their uh, KPI is on the project and figure out how to um, attack that full force and make sure that they're getting the most out of their project and that they're gonna, you know, feel like they're being taken care of and that their needs are heard. Um, But also too, that you're gonna offer some input when needed because, you know, you don't wanna just be a yes man for your client because clients don't like that either. So they want you to offer direction, but they want you to stay in the scope of work that that they were looking for in the first place. Um, so I think that's that's super super important. I think that's that's a hard thing to grasp when you're like coming coming up in the beginning. But yeah, I mean, I think it's a really interesting topic, um, and I think it's another one of those things you just gotta feel it out. Uh, you just gotta you know understand the needs of your client, and sometimes there just is a client that just wants a really cheap project, and they have ten grand for it, and you know you're really tempted to say, oh man. I'm going to uh, rent some anamorphics and do this upright. And uh, I really want to shoot with a uh, Steadicam operator. So I'm going to do that as well. And then they can hate that, you know? And it's just, it's it, right. When in reality, you could have just taken that money and been like, cool, I'm going to spend $200 in stock footage and I'm going to pocket the, you know, $9,200 or whatever it is on this project and I'm going to call it a day, you know? <laughs> Nick, let's wrap this up. Let's do it. Is there anything you want to plug or say before we head out? So you can find me on Instagram at Nicholas, N-I-C-H-O-L-A-S dot Ingram, I-N-G-R-A-M. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, it's Nick Ingram. And you can follow the company that I work for. Uh, it's called Snapshot Interactive. Uh, we have a website, Facebook, Instagram, all the above. So yeah, feel free to reach out. Shoot me an Instagram message or something. Happy to talk about anything we talked about today. Sweet. Thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah, thank you for having me.